Here's a question for you: How many Rice Krispies will fit into the bowl of the Lovell telescope? How many 500 grams boxes is that? You can assume that there is no milk. The answer will be given after the Jodcast, always giving you that little bit extra. With Stuart Lowe, Nick Rattenbury, David Alt, Tim O'Brien, and Ian Morrison. The Jodcast, May extra issue. Hello and welcome to this, the first extra show. Yes, our twice monthly format has started in style, and we'll be completing Dr. Carol Mundell's interview on active galactic nuclei. And also having ask an astronomer later on in the show. First, though, a few words of thanks. On the May show, we ran a little plea for us to be reviewed on iTunes, and so far, six people since that have indeed given us very good reviews and、uh, put their names on iTunes. So, thanks very much to AG Stevie, Mr Amnesia, Dick Darkroom, Welsh K. And the Swedish dot 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 the Swedish ellipsis, if you will, actually said that there were lots of little golden nuggets within the Jodcast. We love all the feedback that we get, and the more that you tell us, the more we can make the Jodcast something that you actually want to listen to and you actually want to download. So please do keep those reviews coming. Please do keep on using the feedback form on our website. Just tell us what you want. Tell us when you want it and how you want us to do it. But first,、uh, with breaking news from the Hubble Space Telescope, here's Stuart. Thanks, Dave. Now, as we go to air, or should that be web, an international team of astronomers using the Hubble Space Telescope claim to have found a ring of dark matter. Now, we can't see dark matter because, after all, it's dark. It doesn't give off light that we can observe, but we can see its effects. Now, this team have observed a cluster of galaxies by the very catchy name of ZWCL 0024 plus 1652. Which shows evidence of gravitational lensing. Basically, what happens is that light from the distant galaxies in the cluster gets smeared into arcs and streaks as it passes through the rest of the cluster towards us. Now, the amount of bending that happens is determined by the amount of and the distribution of the mass that's in the cluster. So, in principle, if you know what the background galaxies should look like, you can work out what distribution of matter is needed to cause what we actually see. Doing this, they ended up finding a ring of dark matter. That doesn't seem to actually match up with the galaxies and the hot gas that we can see. Now, the first thought was that this ring might actually be an artifact due to the way that they were processing the data, but James G from Johns Hopkins University, Baltimore, didn't get the same results when he applied this same technique to other clusters. Using previous observations of the cluster and some computer simulations, they reckon that two clusters containing dark matter, some gas and stars, have collided in the past. The dark matter. Fell into the centre of the combined cluster and bounced back out again. Now this collision happened head-on as we see it, so the dark matter that's bounced out ends up looking like a ring. Now obviously we're an audio podcast, so we'll put links to the image of this dark matter ring and the latest video Hubblecast about it on the Jodcast website. Just go to www.jodcast.net. Right, Dave, back to you. Thanks, Stuart. But now on the May show, we started off an interview with Dr. Carol Mundell of Liverpool John Moores University. But here's Nick just to reintroduce what we heard in May. Physicists and astronomers like taking things to the extreme because that's when our current understanding of physics and astronomy can break down. 
leading us to develop and improve our understanding of nature. This Jodcast interview is all about extreme physics. What I'm talking about is、um, the kind of conditions that you don't easily reproduce in a laboratory. Dr. Carol Mandel, principal lecturer at Liverpool John Moores University, Royal Society University Research Fellow, and RC UK Academic Fellow. So the two particular kinds of objects in the universe that I'm interested in are gamma ray bursts and active galactic nuclei, and the two things that they appear to have in common is that they're driven by black holes. In the case of gamma ray bursts, these are black holes that are about the mass of our sun, but concentrated into probably an area, a volume about, you know. One mile across.、Mm-hmm. Supermassive black holes are at the centres of most bulge-dominated galaxies, including our own galaxy. The Milky Way has a, a smallish black hole, ten to the seven,、uh, ten million solar masses at the centre of our own black hole.、Um, That's a small black hole. It sounds awfully large to me. But well, it, yeah, it's small by by AGN standards. I mean, if you look at the most luminous active galactic nuclei in the universe, quasars. They're kind of ten to the nine solar masses,、mm. so、um, they're the, the the largest mass black holes. But of course, in the local universe, we do have these smaller black holes sitting at the centres of spiral galaxies. And the question that really interests me is why do some galaxies have this activity at their centres, where they have the the material that's being heated up and spewed out by these black hole-driven central engines, when other galaxies lie in quiescence and just Go on about their business without even seeming to know that they have a black hole at their centre, <laughs> and this really goes to the heart of how galaxies are formed and how they grow through co- through cosmic history. Because in the early universe, when the universe was much more violent, galaxies were crashing together, but galaxies were being created, black holes were being formed and grown. Then you see most of the really beefy active galactic nuclei, the so-called quasars. That's where they were most active, and then the universe started to calm down and become a much more gentler place to live in. And now we have very well-established galaxies like the Milky Way, spiral galaxies that have nice gas disks and nice stellar bulges. They have black holes at their centres, but obviously they're not spewing out these these massive jets of plasma. And in fact, quasars outshine the whole of their host galaxies. Whereas in the local universe, the less luminous active galactic nuclei, such as Cefet galaxies. You will see a bright central point source, but it doesn't dominate the starlight of the galaxy. So the big question is, what triggers and fuels these black holes into this period of activity, or if you like, cosmic indigestion? And that's something that scientists have not really got to grips with.、Um, although the discovery of quasars happened back in the 1960s, and we understand an awful lot about the physics of these objects, but we still don't know what actually turns a black hole on.、Hmm. And this is something that I've been involved in working with a number of colleagues since. Postgraduate students looking at how the gas and the stars move close as you get closer towards the centre of the galaxy, and trying to understand if the host galaxy itself is responsible in some ways as to how it feeds、um, and you know causes its black hole not to digest its food, if you like. This sounds a silly question, but how does a black hole emit anything? How are these black holes at the centre of our galaxy spewing out these jets of plasma? Well, of course, the material—any material that goes over the event horizon of a black hole—is lost in terms of any information. Anything that goes beyond a, a black hole event horizon can no longer be recovered by an observer outside of that environment. But what we think is happening at the centres of these these active galaxies is, as the material falls down towards the black hole, it has angular momentum and it forms an accretion disk. So a very hot X-ray emitting disk of of plasma at the centres of these these objects. 
and a little bit of the material may leak over the event horizon but most of it has too much angular momentum to be able to fall directly into the black hole and this is what I alluded to earlier on when I said they are not actually great cosmic vacuum cleaners they don't go around sucking up their host <laughs> galaxies and if you have angular momentum or spin energy you can't just fall straight down the plug hole in the same way that you see bath water it doesn't go straight down the plug hole it has to orbit around the, the, the plug hole before it loses its angular momentum and falls in so the big question really is how you can get some material to lose enough angular momentum to get down towards these accretion disks to then be heated up with the viscous forces or frictional forces within the disks that then light up as x-ray and ultraviolet emitters and also then again scientists don't know the details of these theories but if you have strong magnetic fields you then potentially are able to launch these jets of plasma um, away from the black hole so the material never actually goes into the black hole it's already spewed out before it gets there right so the magnetic fields or whatever is driving these jets pulls the material off the accretion, accretion disk and spits it out yeah or maybe even a hot corona above yeah. the accretion disk but certainly in the vicinity of the accretion disk so what do we learn from our observations of ag and how do we observe these ag and uh, objects in what wavelength? Well, again, AGN are very much like gamma ray bursts. They emit across the entire electromagnetic spectrum. And so to get a complete view of the physics of these objects, one has to look from gamma rays right through to the radio regime. And, of course, the beauty of looking at AGN, the luxury that we don't have for gamma ray bursts, is that we're actually able to make spatially resolved images, both of the host galaxy environment and also the material that's being spewed out. The radio has been seminal, really, um, as a wavelength regime, in particular interferometers like Merlin and the VLA, back in the, the 1970s, um, when quasars had first been discovered and radio galaxies were starting to be imaged, even just by two-element interferometers, so two radio telescopes linked together, pointing at the sky. It was clear that famous objects like Cygnus A had radio plasma extending way beyond the host galaxy vast lobes of radioplasma were being inflated and it was clear that in order to pump up these lobes of radioplasma you had to have a jet that connected you right back to the black hole. So in some ways what we observe with our telescopes is the exhaust fumes coming out from the central engine which is the, the black hole driven central engine and in fact it's slightly even harder than that because all we get is the light from the exhaust fumes and we have to use the light from the exhaust fumes to try to understand the physics of what's going on literally underneath the bonnet of the car. How do we go from the observations in light, in whatever wavelength we use, to understanding these AGN? What are the models? Well, some of the key pieces of information were, were really first disentangled for the most powerful AGN, the so-called quasars and blazars, where if you have material that is being spewed out close to the speed of light, and this material is, you're actually looking very close on to, to the jet, so it's almost, you're almost looking down the nozzle of the hose pipe, if you like. Not quite down the nozzle, so it's just a little bit off from your line of sight. You actually see blobs of plasma being ejected from these central engines, then they appear to be moving much faster than the speed of light. Hmm. So, for example, the giant elliptical galaxy that sits at the centre of our own Virgo cluster has a supermassive black hole there and if you monitor the little the knots that actually come out and appear to move on the sky they appear to be moving six times the speed of light and of course we know from Einstein's theory of relativity that there's a universal speed limit and nothing can physically go faster than the speed of light and you do the maths and you figure back and say well actually this material must be moving so close to the speed of light but because the nozzle of the hose pipe is being pointed close to our line of sight we then see very very high apparent speeds on the sky and that was really the 
the smoking gun that told astronomers that this material is being physically spewed out. So it's not just a light effect, it's actually bulk relativistic motion of plasma that's being, that's being spewed out from this central engine. So the light tells us, we actually look at how the light behaves in different wave bands and we can understand whether the emission processes are, for example, synchrotron radiation, which is produced by electrons spiralling around magnetic fields and then radiating photons of light, or inverse Compton um, emission, where photons are actually crashing into very fast electrons and bouncing up to higher energies and then releasing their light. Mm -hmm. So we're actually able to study how the light is in different wave bands and actually understand what produces the light and how the energetics, if you like, of the electrons that are whizzing about in this plasma produce the light. And we can then work backwards from there. So we understand a few key things, both what actually produces the light, in the same way that you know a laser does it in a laboratory, we understand the mechanism for how the electrons produce the electromagnetic radiation, and we also understand how the plasma that the electrons live in is being ejected and what kind of physical speeds um, are being produced. But as I say, there are still many unanswered questions as to how you actually take some plasma and accelerate it to speeds close to the speed of light. It's something that we certainly can't do on Earth. Extreme physics indeed. Indeed. So from the very largest black holes to the smallest, it sounds like a fantastic field to be working in. It's thank you. very exciting. Thank you very much for talking to us. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Nick. And now answering all of your astronomical questions, here's Tim O'Brien on Ask an Astronomer. Hello. I'm Ian Morris, and I normally do the, the night sky part of the Jodcast, but today I'm actually going to be asking the astronomer the questions. So to start with, we have two that basically have a similar answer. The first is from Martin Ellis, and the second from someone just called Edward. And the first question was this. It was sent on the night of the 19th of the 4th, 07. Can you please tell me what the bright star-like shape is that, if you're looking at the moon, it's about 10 o'clock on a clock face? My wife thinks it's Venus. And the second question from Edward between 20 and 21 hours BST, I assume, I see a bright star in the west which is moving from south to north. What is it? So, Tim, what do you think this is? Well, hello, Ian. Thank you for stepping in for Nick, who's away in New Zealand at the moment. Um, I think, actually, uh, Martin Ellis ought to probably uh, congratulate his wife on getting the right answer because I suspect the answer is that it's Venus. Spot on. Yeah. Um, so it's been very bright recently, you know, as a sort of the uh, evening star, basically, looking like a looking like a very bright star in the, in the evening sky as it, as it darkens. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's basically, more often than not, it's a very common question, this, isn't it, that we, that we get asked, actually, on clear nights, is, is what's this incredibly bright thing in the sky? And more often than not, the answer is Venus. Even the second uh, questionnaire, Edward, um, saying that he sees a bright star in the west which is moving from south to north. I think it was you that pointed this out, that, uh, that of course, because it would be uh, setting, that, that planet itself would, would be moving sort of farther to the west, if you like, which, if you're looking in the western direction, would be effectively south to north. That's absolutely right. We, we had lots of phone calls during a period in April when the, the skies were very clear at night, and someone said they thought Venus and the Moon, I think on the same night, in fact, as you've seen it, Martin, looked just a bit like the, the Turkish flag, which has a crescent and a star. Oh, that's right, yeah. It was uh, and uh, yeah. it really did look lovely. Um, in fact, this last few weeks, and continuing up to the beginning of June, in fact, 
Venus is higher in the sky, or as high in the sky as we ever see it. Right. Uh, the mm. previous time it was visible in the evening, in fact, it was very low. It wasn't nearly so obvious, but I can even see it from my back garden and have a lousy western horizon, so that's pretty good. I can vouch for his western horizon. It's very poor. Um, yeah, so, the, I mean, the, probably the other thing to say, I guess, is just to remind people again about um, how they might discover the answers to these questions themselves, actually. Absolutely. I mean, of course, we welcome them sending in the questions to us, but uh, there's several websites on which you can find some uh, software. Of course, there's, there's Ian's uh, Night Sky that will tell you a little bit about things, um, but there's also uh, software that you can download. So, for example... Stellarium, which is which is free software. Carte du Ciel is another one. Celestia. Exactly. Yes. There's several there's several software uh, packages which you, which are free to download, and which will tell you exactly what these things are in the night sky from your location at whatever time you happen to be observing. So worthwhile uh, checking those out, I would say. Uh, another website that's really useful is Heavens Above. Yes. www.heavens-above.com, I think it is which tells you not only does it have information about what's up, up and about in the night sky at any given time, it also gives you predictions for when you'd be able to see satellites, like the International Space Station and um, these iridium flares. These, you know about those, don't you, Ian? Yes, in fact, um, we had a Macclesfield Astronomy Society meeting here just a couple of weeks ago, and the chairman said we're going to see an iridium flash at uh, 10 minutes to 10. Actually, it was 09... 54 and 30 seconds, I think, up in the northeast, and it arrived yeah, spot on, on. Yeah. and it looked very bright. The first time I saw one of those, I thought it might be a supernova. Just two other little comments about Venus I, I find interesting. The first is that um, as it becomes nearer to the Earth, it obviously gets larger in angular size, mm-hmm. but at the same time, the amount of the surface we assume, see illuminated gets less, it becomes yep. a crescent. And these two factors cancel out. So the brightness of Venus stays pretty well constant at about minus four for about three or four months. So that's one interesting thing. And the other comment, of course, is it was the fact that Galileo Galilei was able to see that Venus could have an almost full phase, Mm. which basically proved that the Copernican theory was right. If, as in the Ptolemaic system, Venus rotated in orbit between the Earth and the Sun, it would always be backlit. That's right, but, of course, yeah. if it goes around the sun, you can see it on the far side, and yeah. then that's when you can get a full yeah, phase. Yeah. Okay, the, the, the next question we have comes from Stephen Uiti, we believe. Um, he says this, Extrasolar planets are mostly found by looking at the star's wobble, which is caused by the planets in orbit around it. But, he points out, many stars are variable. The sun is, to some extent. So, as a star expands and contracts a bit that will also shift the spectral lines. So how can we distinguish between this effect and the movement due to a planet? It's a very, very searching question. Yeah, so this is a a good question, actually. Um, It's been something that's uh, been mentioned in the past, of course, is that really the problem is that when we detect these planets by by what's called Doppler wobble, um, what we're talking about is that as the planet orbits the star the star itself is orbiting. In fact, they're both orbiting the common centre of mass, so the star sort of wobbles around and around this sort of common centre of mass. Uh, And it's possible to take very high-precision spectra of the star, to split the light into a spectrum and look at the um, basically the the variations in the spectrum due to the absorption um, of light by uh, atoms and molecules in the atmosphere of the star. 
look at the fact that those have basically shifted um, backwards and forwards in the spectrum, so from sort of the red to the blue and back again, as the star moves towards us, causing a shift to the blue, and as the star moves away from us, causing a shift to the red, basically Doppler shift, blue shift and red shift. Um, so the, really what, what, uh, what Stephen's asking is, is it possible to disentangle um, the effect of stellar pulsation from this Doppler wobble? Because he's sort of imagining, you know, if the star uh, expands and contracts, then at one point when the star's expanding, the, the atmosphere of the star is moving towards us, and that might result in a, in a blue shift, of course. And, and then when it contracts, it moves away from you, it results in a red shift. So how can you tell the difference between the two things? First thing to say probably is that is that those sorts of simple pulsations, as described there, so-called radial pulsations, where the radius of the star is changing, would actually generally would result in a brightness variation. So it's possible to check for a sort of correlation between these uh, these shifts, these Doppler shifts seen in the spectrum, and the brightness of the star. And t- and typically that that you know for these stars, for these uh, putative uh, extrasolar planets orbiting these particular stars, that. That, ver- that correlation doesn't, doesn't exist. Um, so often it's, it's fairly straightforward to sort of exclude the possibility of, of pulsation in that simple way. However, there was sort of early on in the story of discovering extrasolar planets by this technique, there was a bit of a debate that was... Uh, there's a famous paper by a, a gentleman called David Gray, an astronomer called David Gray, uh, who pointed out that his observations of 51 Peg, which was the first solar-type star to have planets found by this orbiting planets found by this Doppler wobble technique, he pointed out that his observations showed that the, the, the shapes of these, uh, these so-called absorption lines, the, the features in the stellar spectrum that, that, that are caused by absorption from atoms in the atmosphere, the shapes of these profiles, these lines, was changing with the same period as, this, as, the, so, as the putative planet was orbiting the star. So he was saying, actually... It's a confusion. There's something happening here where there's so-called non-radial pulsations. There's some sort of complicated sort of oscillation of the star, which results in the in the shapes of the lines changing with this period. And that when the astronomers who do the Doppler uh, variations measure it, they're confused by that change in shape and they interpret it as a as a as a Doppler uh, profile caused by the star moving towards and away from us. So, you know, that caused quite a bit of debate um, over a period of a year or so at the time. Um, and really that's gone away now because not long after, in fact, there was a paper published the following year in, in 1998 by the same author, by David Gray, and, and there were others as well, where he, he basically redid his observations and found that that signal had gone away. So, in fact, there was no longer any evidence for those line profile changes. So, you know, in that particular case, it seems that that, you know, that was, in effect, his explanation was that it was basically a one in a, one in a few hundred chance that his original observations were, were wrong by, by chance, by sort of noise in the, in the observations, and that he was unlucky, and that was, that was basically what had happened with the, original, with the original observations. However, people are very careful. Astronomers are very careful, of course, to exclude all these sorts of possibilities, and they're always looking at carefully at correlations between the Doppler variations and say the brightness or even the you know other indicators due to the you know from from these various lines that are in there that would be usually tied to oscillation and an example of that is is the sort of you know the magnetic cycle of a star so you know the sun has a an an 11 year or perhaps more accurately a 22 year um, cycle and it's you know the number of sunspots and it's all to do with the magnetic field of the sun Um, that itself can actually cause a signature 
um, similar to the uh, similar to that which would be found in these in these Doppler variations. So it's important to uh, you know for those sort of long time scale variations that might mask say a Saturn like planet or something. Um, it's important to look for these other correlations with particular lines that such a magnetic cycle would give and so that you can exclude that possibility and that's basically what's done. Um, I think probably just to, just to finish off with it, it's probably worth pointing out now of course that finding planets by uh, radial velocity by this Doppler wobble technique is not the only way it's done. It is, the, it is the majority of planets that have been discovered that way but it's certainly not all of them now and if you look at say the extrasolar planets encyclopedia which you can find on the web. Uh, it's maintained by uh, an astronomer called Jean Schneider um, at the Paris Observatory. Then uh, you'll find that uh, that encyclopedia currently says that there are 235 candidate planets, 223 planets that would have been detected by radial velocity, that there's uh, 19 planets have, have had a transit detected. So, so also, you know, some, some of that overlaps. So for example, if a planet passes in front of its uh, uh, parent star, then the, then the brightness of the background star is going to be, some of it's going to be blocked, and so you get a dip in, dip in the brightness. And of course, you know, that's a completely independent method to this radial velocity technique. There's also microlensing, where gravitational microlensing, where the, the light from the, a planet star system, uh, a planet star system actually focuses the light from a background star, lenses it, gravitational lensing, sort of Einstein's, um, prediction. Um, there's been four planets found uh, that way thus far, according to that encyclopedia. And there's a number of planets been detected by imaging. There's also planets been detected by looking at pulsars at pulsar timing. So there's there's you know there's a number of different ways it's done. So you know it's not you know although the majority of radio velocity is by no means uh, the only way it's done. And probably just 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 the the last point is to look at uh, there's a new uh, satellite that was launched relatively recently called Coro or CORO, uh, the acronym C-O-R-O-T, which is stands for Convection, Rotation and Transits, which is it's a mission that's a collaboration between the French Space Agency and partners in the European Space Agency and various countries uh, in Europe and also Brazil. It's basically looking at uh, asteroseismology, so the sort of you know oscillations of stars, and also searching for searching for planets by transits, by this sort of, as the light, the brightness of the star varies. And it's really interesting looking at some of the first results which were announced recently, very recently. They've found the first planet transiting its parent star with a period of 1.5 days. Lovely, gorgeous, high-accuracy uh, photometry, measuring the brightness. Uh, beautiful observations. And also some observations of, you know, of oscillations. So it shows, for example, um, looking at high-accuracy uh, photometry, um, of a star like the Sun and seeing the sort of uh, the oscillations you get and, and typically you get these sorts of modes of oscillation of, of varying frequencies so varying periods are present as different types of oscillation you know just like when you strike a bell you get all these different modes of oscillation and frequencies going on at the same time you get the same thing in a star and this, this satellite is showing you know lovely results and clearly sort of being able to distinguish between these different effects. But it is a problem. It is certainly something that you, you know, you can't dismiss um, lightly. You've got to be very careful in, the, in your interpretation of your observations. And that's, that's basically what astronomers do. So that brings the May Extra Edition to an end for the time being. We'll be back on the 1st of June. But until then, please, as I say, review us on iTunes. Thanks also to those people who dug us. 
So if you if you are into digging, please dig us. And also the people who have friended us on Twitter. Thanks to Nick and Stuart and Ian and Tim and all of you who've downloaded us. And so until the June edition, until the 1st of June, we wish you all the best for the rest of the month and we'll see you then. Goodbye. So now the answer to how many Rice Krispies you can fit in the Lovell Telescope. Well, the answer is a lot. To do things properly, we've got a paraboloid with a focal length of 22.9 metres and a diameter of 76 metres. We can assume that the volume of this is around 60,000 cubic metres. Now we just have to guess the volume of a Rice Krispie. Now we'd like to say that Kellogg's were not very forthcoming about what volume Rice Krispies were. Stuart called them up on their customer care line and asked them what is the volume of an average Rice Krispie, but they weren't able to say. So we've taken it as basically spherical with a half centimetre diameter. It's a bit big and they're rice grain shaped rather than spherical, but that's okay. It's about right. When you put this in the volume of the level divided by the volume of a Rice Krispie, you can even take into account the packing density of randomly packed spheres, which is 0.64. It turns out to be around 600,000 million Rice Krispies. That's three times as many stars as there are in the galaxy. Now, if each Rice Krispie has a mass of 0.02 grams, the same as a grain of rice, a 500-gram box will contain 25,000 Rice Krispies, which means that 24 million boxes would be needed to fill it up. However... With the total mass of Rice Krispies that there would be, this would be way too much for the bowl to support. So we would only be able to fill less than 10% of the bowl before the whole thing collapsed. So there you go, 600,000 million, but probably only about 10% of that. So 60,000 million Rice Krispies fitting in the Lovell Telescope. More facts, figures, questions, and random stuff on the extra intros and outros. See you next month.